Okay, so our, our reading this morning is Genesis chapter 26, verses 12 to 33. Genesis 26, starting at verse 12. So this is part of the story of Isaac. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. From there, he went up to Beersheba that night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the, the third in our series, Refresh. And today we will be considering the kind of refreshment that needs digging for. I've just been away for a couple of days down at Clare Priory for an away day for my new job, which is quite refreshing in itself. And over lunch one day, we started talking about young people's mental health issues. One person mentioned that a school they were involved with had just appointed a full-time counsellor. Now the news seems to be full of items about the pressures on young people today. We can blame social media, the jobs market, the dreadful housing market. 
But then those of us who must admit we are no longer young can look at our own generation, whatever that might be, and see similar signs of stress and pressure there. In fact, the happiest people seem to be those who have retired. So we decided the nine o'clock service proportionately was a little o oasis of contentment in St Barnabas. <laughs> now, you yourself may not at present be in a stressful situation, but I'm pretty sure that you'll know someone who is. We can't really even blame the culture out there because stress is just as prevalent within the church. Within the leadership of the church as a whole, although vocations to ministry seem fairly healthy, ministers are dropping out in mid-career because they're burnt out. For the rest of us in the pews, church, church activities can so easily become another item on the to-do list, making us feel that even our weekends are taken up with obligations, stuff we have to do. Modern life is a bit rubbish. But surely this can't be the end of the story for us. What difference does it make that we're part of the people of God? So our reading this morning takes us back to a nomadic society where finding water is vital for the life of the people and, and their flocks and herds. Water isn't flowing through this land readily available. It needs digging for, and we get just a glimpse of the work involved in, in simply keeping alive in this harsh environment. Now, we might think that this episode is just a bit of historical colour, you know, the digging of the wells and this account of Isaac's life. But I think what should make us pause is the way in which the story is structured. The finding of the water is interwoven with relationship with the living God. Isaac and his men are driven away from two wells that they dig, then they successfully dig another, which they manage to hold on to, and declare the Lord has made room for us. At Beersheba, the Lord appears to Isaac and reaffirms that covenant promise. I am the God of your father Abraham. I am with you and will bless you and make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac's men start digging a well. Abimelech, who drove them all away in the first place, comes back and makes a covenant of peace with him. Then Isaac's men come and announce that they found water. So the finding of water is interwoven with, it's symbolic of finding room in the land, renewal of covenant, peace with enemies. God is intimately involved in the life and the refreshment of his people. Now, there are times when, as Jesus promised, water of life seems to bubble up within us. But I imagine we all know well that there are other times when we seem to be trudging through Psalm 63. Let me read you a few verses. O oh God, you are my God, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The Psalm goes on. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So at times, like the psalmist is experiencing the dry and weary land, where do we dig for the water? How do we look upon God and find refreshment? I think we can be slow sometimes to see our own need. 
I think few of us intend to end up working constantly, hobbies dropping away, less and less time for friendships. I speak from my own experience over the past few years. Busyness can be quite insidious and it can creep up on us. And if you see whatever you do during the day, your work as your vocation, that God has made you to be a teacher or a mother or an accountant or a nurse or an administrator, it can be quite difficult to say no to the extras. It can be quite difficult to say no if you're working to that extra shift or late hours, because you start to define yourself in terms of this vocation. Saying no to the long hours starts to feel like saying no to God's call on your life. And it may be that you're not in this situation yourself, but have a think about those you know, because sometimes people outside the situation can see more than those in it and experiencing it. We are called to care for one another, and it may be that you're called to reflect back to someone what you're seeing of how their life is looking. Now, recently I came across this book called Sustaining Leadership by a chap called Paul Swan. It's aimed really at vicars and such like in the front row there. But it has a lot to say about spiritual self-care to any of us who feel weary and heavy laden. So a lot of what I'm saying is inspired by, by Paul Swan's book this morning. Here's a sentence or two from it. Duke Divinity School, Duke Divinity School undertook research that found that clergy who were flourishing with positive mental health scores were distinguishable from those who were languishing in one key respect. Flourishers attended to their own well-being. In fact, 94% of clergy with flourishing mental health were intentional about spending time on personal care. Hope you're listening there in the front row. Now, it's not just the clergy who need to hear this. There are a lot of us who could learn from this. And I often think, I can suggest this, particularly women, who still, even in the 21st century, and even in the church, so often end up with the household maintenance and childcare arrangements, and looking after the pets, as well as their work, if they work outside the home. And I'm, it's not that I'm blaming the men here, because I think, sisters, we sometimes do it to ourselves. How often do we feel, I speak to everyone now, how often do we feel that doing something for our own refreshment is selfish or self-indulgent. I wonder whether there's something that still lurks within us that feels we're valuable primarily because of what we do. We earn our place and value in the world because we do useful stuff in it. But this is the world's view and we need to resist it, not least because it leads to those who can't do being regarded as valueless. We're valuable simply and only because God loves us. As Henry Nouwen, the author, priest and counsellor said, you were loved by God before you were born. You will be loved by God long after you die. We do not have to do anything in order to justify our existence. Now, of course, then each of us has our own calling in the world which ideally helps us to become the people we were truly meant to be. But again, it's God whom we ultimately serve. We're not trying to please human beings. 
both in our passage today and in Psalm 63. It's relationship with God that makes the difference, that releases the refreshing waters. I am the Lord your God, the God of your Father. The psalmist, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. So again, how can we look upon God in a way that will refresh our soul? Where will we dig for the life-giving water? Now sometimes this is about allowing us, uh, allowing ourselves to encounter the Lord in a different way. For instance, if you've never gone to one of the college chapel services, they're starting up in a couple of weeks, you can hear wonderful choirs in a stunning setting and be bowled over by the beauty of holiness and by sacred space. Perhaps you could decide to do something in your prayer life or even think about aiming for a more regular prayer life if that's something that you struggle with. If you followed a certain pattern of devotional reading for a while, why not try something different? Ask friends for something they found helpful. Think about feeding senses that you neglect. If you tend to be a sort of a person who reads texts, think about meditating on a picture. This is the Archbishop of York's Advent, yeah, Advent book um, this year. I nearly thought Lent, but no, we are in Advent almost. Um, this is by Jane Williams, The Art of Advent, A Painting a Day from Advent to Epiphany. So wonderfully reproduced pictures and a little meditation on each. So if you're someone who, who reads text, why not try looking at pictures for a change? If you are already someone who looks at pictures, why don't you try listening to some sacred music? If you're someone who likes to work with your hands, why don't you make something as your prayer? Perhaps you need to make some larger space for, for refreshment in your life. Let me ask you a question. You're not allowed to think too long about this. It's got to be the first thing that comes to mind. If tomorrow, Monday, you were unexpectedly given a day off from every obligation, that's every obligation from washing up through to taking the kids to school, what would you do? Now, if your first thought was something like, ah, oh, that would be great, I could catch up with cleaning the house, clearing my emails, can I suggest you might want to give some serious thought to your own well-being? But if something does occur to you, maybe it's something that you just haven't been able to do for a while, it's got, you know, just edged out by more worthy activities, the good news is we do all have a day that we're invited to keep free from work and open for refreshment. We have God's gift to us of Sabbath. Now, Sunday may not be the best day for Sabbath, depending on your work cycle, particularly not for those in the front row. But if we allow the pressure of work to push out Sabbath, and again, I speak from experience, the result is a kind of perpetual weariness. The joy of life starts to dry up. Now, Paul Swan in his book, quotes the work of a, of a theologian called Marva Dawn on Sabbath. And she makes four points about Sabbath, what it's about. Number one, Sabbath is about ceasing. It means stopping, whether or not you've finished your to-do list. It means switching off. Dare I suggest it might mean switching off your phone. 
Modern technology can be the enemy of refreshment. So one, ceasing. Number two, Sabbath is about resting. Not lying in bed all day, though I am a big fan of the Sunday afternoon nap. But resting is just that activity you just thought of that brings you joy, that brings you recreation, that renews you. So ceasing, resting. Sabbath is about embracing, recalibrating our Christian life, remembering we are the beloved of God, remembering our gospel values. And for me, this is a major function of coming together to worship on a Sunday. When we're immersed in a culture of rush and hurry and consumerism, we can become infected by its values. So Sabbath helps us stop and remember who we are, embrace the fact that we're God's beloved children. This is Eugene Peterson, the message guy. He says, Sabbath is that uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves long enough from our own activities to see what God is doing. That uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves long enough from our own activities to see what God is doing. So ceasing, resting, embracing the richness of, of son and daughtership of God. And lastly, Sabbath is about feasting and celebration. Sunday, and this is official, Sunday is a feast day for the church, even in Lent. So what can you feast on in your Sabbath rest? Now, if you feel you'd like to explore how you might restore Sabbath to your life, I would invite you to surf your way to St. Patrick's Episcopal Church. It's an American church. And there, if you just put in St. Pat Patrick's Episcopal Church, you'll get there. And if when you get there, you put in the little search box, Sabbath, you'll find they've produced a series of one-page PDFs you can download that make, each one makes a suggestion for how to keep Sabbath, how to enrich it. Um, here's, here's the first one. There's a quote, starts with a quotation. Observing the Sabbath is saving my life now, says this woman. For the first time in my life, I can rest without leaving home. With sundown on the Sabbath, I stop seeing the dust balls, the bills and the laundry. They are still there, but they lose their power over me. One day each week, I live as if all my work were done. I live as if the kingdom has come. And when I do, the kingdom comes for one day at least. So I commend these to you. They've actually got activities for families as well, so if you wanted to do it you know, as a family uh, or, or alone, they work either way, they're great. I'll leave these lying about at the front if you want to have a look afterwards. Sabbath refreshment, and this may seem a bit of a contradiction in terms, is worth digging for. And it does have to be dug for. We need to keep bringing ourselves back to its principles because it goes against the flow of the Western world's ethos and concerns. Swan records a conversation between two Christian leaders. One asks the other, what must I do to stay spiritually healthy? The response, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. First chap says, right, got that, what else? Response, there is nothing else. Hurry is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day, in our context. You must ruthless, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. 
That struck such a chord with me when I read it. I have for the past several years spent my time rushing from one appointment to the next, back-to-back -back meetings, spraying out emails to try and sort stuff in between. And your mind in the end gets into that habit of haste. It becomes more and more difficult to relax. And in the end, your health can start to suffer. In fact, Paul Swan's book grows out of his experience of complete collapse through overwork as a, as a, as a priest. So seeking and allowing ourselves refreshment is therefore an act of resistance against the world's attempts to distract us from the things of God. If the Christian life is as pressured and hectic as any other life, what do we have to offer people? If we're worn down and lose our vitality, how can we be salt and light in the world? So I invite you to look on God in the sanctuary and know that you are God's beloved, rescued at great cost by Jesus for a rich life, a life in abundance and a life with Sabbaths. Cease, rest, embrace your calling, feast. I'm going to end now by reading the first part of Psalm 63. And I invite you to just sit and receive and look on God in the sanctuary. O oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Amen. Amen.